Welcome to Crime, Corruption, and Cocktails, the true crime podcast where we look at cases of corruption and negligence and examine their historical and cultural implications. Today, I'm drinking a Bloody Mary. What are you having, Jenny? I'm drinking a hard cider, and today we're getting into a spooky case, which is the infamous Salem Witch Trials. I'm really excited. Del, I know you're excited, so let's get into it. Our case begins in Salem Village, Massachusetts, during the winter of 1692, and focuses on the Puritans, a group of early American settlers that were devout Christians. Reverend Samuel Parris's nine-year-old daughter Elizabeth and his 11-year-old niece Abigail became ill with a mysterious ailment. They were having fits that included screaming, contorting into strange positions, throwing things, and making strange noises. The village doctor, William Griggs, blamed the supernatural and diagnosed a case of bewitchment. Not long after this incident, 11-year-old Ann Putnam Jr. and other girls began experiencing similar episodes. On February 29th, the girls blamed Tichaba, the Paris's Caribbean slave, Sarah Good, a homeless beggar, and Sarah Osborne, an elderly impoverished woman, for afflicting them. They claimed the women had been in their dreams and were forcing them to perform this odd behavior. Days later, the three accused women were brought before local magistrates John Hathorne and Jonathan Corwin and were interrogated. Good and Osborne proclaimed they were innocent, but Tichiba said, quote, The devil came to me and bid me serve him. End quote. She described visions of black dogs, red cats, yellow birds, and a quote unquote black man who wanted her to sign his book. She admitted that she signed the book and said that there were several other witches looking to destroy the Puritans. Despite this, many now believe Tichiba was coerced into giving a false confession. Tichiba, Osborne, and Good were all quickly jailed. However, this was only the beginning. More accusations from afflicted girls came in the following months. The accused locals included Rebecca Nurse, Elizabeth and John Proctor, Bridget Bishop, and Martha and Giles Corey. On May 27, 1692, Governor William Pipps ordered the establishment of a special court of oyer, which means to hear, and terminer, which means to decide, for Suffolk, Essex, and Middlesex counties. The first case brought to the special court was Bridget Bishop's. Many of these trials relied on spectral evidence, which is testimony in which witnesses claimed that the accused appeared to them and did them harm in a dream or a vision. Occasionally during the trials, the afflicted girls would fly into fits or claim the accused was getting into their mind during that very moment. When asked if she committed witchcraft, Bridget Bishop responded, quote, I am as innocent as the child unborn, end quote. Bishop was found guilty and hanged on June 10, 1692, on what later became known as Gallows Hill. Following her execution, 12 ministers of the colony advised the special court not to rely entirely on spectral evidence to obtain convictions. Bishop was the first of 19 people hanged during the Salem witch trials. Paranoia spread and authorities were relentless in their fight against witchcraft. Before his execution in August 1692, George Burroughs perfectly recited the Lord's Prayer. However, Minister Cotton Mather insisted that, quote, the devil has often been transformed into an angel of light, end quote. One of the other notable deaths of the Salem Woods trials was that of 81-year-old Giles Corey. Corey was pressed to death in 1692 for refusing to stand trial. 
pressing someone to death is the process of tying the naked prisoner down on the ground, laying on his or her back, placing a board on the person's chest and abdomen, and adding stones or iron weights, gradually increasing the weight and suffocating the victim slowly. This process was expected to take at least a day or two, giving the accused a full opportunity to experience tremendous discomfort and force a plea. Corey died after two days, and many claim he asked for more weight each time he was asked to plead. And this is the only recorded pressing in American history. In October 1692, Governor Pipps, whose own wife had been accused of witchcraft, dissolved the court of Olier and Terminer and released many of the accused. A new superior court was created to try the remaining witchcraft cases. And Chief Justice Dodden condemned three of the 56 persons accused of witchcraft. In early 1693, the Chief Justice signed death warrants for those three and for five others condemned in 1692. Governor Pipps then reprieved the eight Stodden had condemned, causing Stodden to leave the court. That spring, Governor Pipps pardoned those still imprisoned on the charge of witchcraft, and in 1694, witchcraft was declared no longer an actionable legal offense in Massachusetts Bay. In addition to the 20 people executed, several people died in jail, and nearly 200 people have been accused of practicing, quote-unquote, the devil's magic. Following the trials and execution, many involved publicly confessed error and guilt. On January 14, 1697, the general court ordered a day of fasting and soul-searching for the tragedy of Salem. In 1702, the court declared the trials unlawful, and in 1711, the colony passed a bill restoring the rights and good names of those accused and granted a 600-pound restitution to their heirs. It was not until 1957, more than 250 years later, that Massachusetts formally apologized for the events of the Salem Witch Trials. Their apology read in quote, the General Court of Massachusetts declares its belief that such proceedings, even if lawful under the province charter and the law of Massachusetts as it then was, were and are shocking and the result of a wave of popular hysterical fear of the devil in the community, end quote. Hundreds of years later, we're still left wondering what caused the afflicted girl's bizarre behavior. There is no definitive answer as of now, but there are many theories. What some consider the most concrete theory is that a fungus or mold caused the afflicted girl's actions. A study published in Science in 1976 by psychologist Linda Caporell claimed the afflicted girls were suffering from convulsive ergotism caused by ergot fungus, which can be found in rye, wheat, and other cereal grasses. Toxicologists said that eating the contaminated foods could lead to vertigo, crawling sensations on the skin, extremity tingling, headache, hallucinations, and seizure-like muscle contractions. It has been compared to a bad LSD trip. The fungus also thrives in warm and damp climates, similar to the swampy meadows in Salem Village, where rye was the staple grain during the spring and summer months. Rye was the most prevalent grain grown in the Massachusetts area at the time, and the damp climate and long storage period could have led to a infestation of the grains. This theory has been criticized since epidemics of convulsive 
ergotism have occurred almost exclusively in settlements where individuals suffered from severe vitamin A deficiencies and there was no evidence that Salem residents suffered from such deficiency, especially since they lived in a small farming and fishing village with plenty of access to vitamin A rich foods like fish and dairy products. One of the more controversial theories states that the girls suffered from an outbreak of acephalitis lethargica, an inflammation of the brain spread by insects and birds. Symptoms include fever, headaches, lethargy, double vision, abnormal eye movements, neck rigidity, behavioral changes, and tremors. In her book, A Fever in Salem, Lori Wynn Carlson argues that in the winter of 1691, in spring of 1692, some of the afflicted exhibited these symptoms and the doctor who had been called in to treat the girls mistook their actual ailment as witchcraft, which was a common diagnosis of unseen conditions at the time. Another popular theory is mass hysteria. Conversion disorder, also known as mass hysteria, is a mental condition in which the sufferer experiences neurological symptoms, including heightened awareness of one's surroundings, which may occur due to a psychological conflict. Medical sociologist Dr. Robert Bartholomew has stated that the Salem witch trials were, quote-unquote, undoubtedly a case of conversion disorder during which, quote, psychological conflict and distress are converted into aches and pains that have no physical origin, end quote. Bartholomew believes what happened in Salem was most likely an example of a motor-based hysteria, which is one of the two main forms of conversion disorder. Professor Emerson W. Baker agrees and thinks the mass hysteria could be linked to trauma and war hysteria from King William's War, which took place on Massachusetts' northern frontier. Baker stated that many of the afflicted girls, such as Abigail Hobbs, Mercy Lewis, Susanna Sheldon, and Sarah Churchwell, were all war refugees who had previously lived in Maine and had been personally affected by the war to the point where some of them may have been experiencing post-traumatic stress syndrome. The Salem Witch Museum says the cause of the girls' behavior was most likely the result of a complex mix of fear, repression, adolescence, social pressure, and in some cases trauma suffered during Native American massacres. And finally, one of the most upsetting theories is that the girls were just bored and faking their behavior. This theory simply states that it all started because the girls in the village were bored and lied about their ailments or faked symptoms. There wasn't much to do in Salem Village in the 17th century, and the Puritans held very strict beliefs which forbade many forms of entertainment, not only for adults but also children. For girls, this was even worse because the restrictions for them were more severe than they were for boys. Many of the accused claimed the afflicted girls were lying about their symptoms during their trials and the aftermath following, and at least one unidentified girl was found to be lying during Sarah Good's trial. Historians now do believe that there was a certain amount of faking and fraud among the afflicted, but that it was not widespread. Del, after all of this, what do you think likely caused the girls' behavior? So I definitely agree with the Salem Witch Museum saying that this was a complex mix of a lot of things that was going on that resulted in conversion 
syndrome for most of the girls. I do understand why people might want to say that they were bored and they didn't have anything to do. And yes, there's some evidence that a very small percentage, but I think that was more about being in with the group that was suffering versus them just saying like, oh, let me find something fun to do on this day. I think that people sometimes underestimate the effects that war and other traumas can have on children. A lot of people say, well, children are so resilient. But when at such a young age, you're forced from your home, you're going into this new, very strict community, it's very hard for your brain to process that. And especially since your parents don't want to be the outliers in the community, they're really going to force that upon you. So I think that it started with those small group of refugees that came to Massachusetts. And then conversion disorder happened to the other afflicted girls in this case. What do you think? I agree. I think for a majority of the girls, it was some type of conversion disorder. I had never heard about King William's War. And exactly what you said, Del, a lot of times people don't realize that mental health ailments can affect your physical health. I'm sure that no one back then was talking about the trauma and their feelings with one another. I would be shocked. I mean, maybe they were if there was like truly nothing to do. Maybe people were, you know, talking and I'm sure people like journaled and stuff. But that seems the most believable to me. I can believe that maybe some people were affected by either mold or the encephalitis lethargica. But I mean, someone that doesn't have like a medical background, I don't know all of the symptoms and whatnot of that. So I can't say I'm super convinced by either of those. We talked about the theories for the afflicted girl's behavior, but let's get into the cultural and societal causes for the Salem witch trials. The Puritans that resided in Salem Village were devoutly religious people who feared the occult. They strongly believed in the existence of witches and witchcraft. They believed witches were in an alliance with the devil and that gave them power to do harm. It was widely believed that witches could cause people physical harm and could control natural forces like the weather. Witches were blamed for all types of misfortunes, from illnesses and fell crops to bad weather and other things that had a perfectly rational explanation, even in 1692. Their belief in the occult led them to ignore reason and logic and to instead view witches as a real threat. Many believe harsh weather also played a role in the hysteria in Salem Village. Historical records show that the years leading up to the witch trials were cold and led to crop failure, food shortages, disease, slow population growth, and a poor economy. These hardships led some to theorize that Salem Village residents were paranoid and wanted someone to blame for their personal struggles. This scapegoating then manifested itself as persecution of witches. That leads us into the fact that many of those who were accused of witchcraft had unsettled accounts with their accusers or were seen as a threat to the Puritan values. For example, Bridget Bishop was an older woman known for her gossipy habits and promiscuity. Other examples include people who do not go to church, beggars, personal rivalries, land disputes, and arguments over politics and religion. 
About 50 people were directly or indirectly accused by the members of the Putnam family who strictly followed the Puritan beliefs and custom and strongly supported Reverend Samuel Harris, the initiator of the witch hunt. The Putnam's rival family, the Porters, tried to organize the villagers against the trial, but the attempt failed and 19 of their supporters got accused of witchcraft. Within these rivalries is the claim that Salem Village, where the witchcraft accusations began, was a more rural and poorer counterpart to the neighboring Salem town, which was populated by wealthy merchants. According to the authors Paul Boyer and Stephen Nissenbaum, Salem Village was being torn apart by two opposing groups, the largely agrarian townsfolk to the west and more business-minded villagers to the east, closer to Salem Town. They stated that these groups were more so worried about where Salem Village was going politically and religiously. However, some of Boyer and Nissenbaum's claims have been criticized. It was likely because of this paranoia and personal vendettas that the accused did not receive fair treatment. Legal scholars say the accused witches were largely, quote, deprived of their rights to which they should have been entitled under English common law, end quote. Remember, the trials took place about 100 years before the Bill of Rights was created, so that, you know, wasn't going to play a role in the witch trials. Many were convicted on victim retellings and spectral evidence. And Increase Mather, then president of Harvard, denounced the use of spectral evidence, saying that, quote, it were better than 10 suspected witches should escape than one innocent person should be condemned, end quote. Many suspects remained in jail for months because they could not pay for their release, and the law required prisoners to pay for food and board before they could be released, so the debt continued to accumulate. The town also seized property belonging to the accused, leaving families destitute. And when we look at this, um, in modern times, memorials honoring the victims of the witch trials do stand today in both Salem and Danvers, Massachusetts. The state of Massachusetts has fully exonerated five people accused of witchcraft, and they are Bridget Bishop, Susanna Martin, Alice Parker, Wilmot Red, and Margaret Scott. And very recently, a middle school class in Massachusetts has been trying to get Elizabeth Johnson Jr. exonerated as well. Tell, do you have any thoughts or reflections on, I guess, the state and the background of Salem and the effects of the trials? So whenever I think about the Salem witch trials, one of the things that always sticks out to me is what happens when extreme theology takes over a place. Like you stated before, a lot of the people that were being accused of witchcraft, obviously they weren't witches. The trials really exemplified that people will always try to control one another and then use how they're controlling other people to set an example. I think that the main effects of the trials on today is how important it is to make sure that if someone is being accused of something, that they are giving the utmost due process. And I also think it gives us a hint into why the death penalty is such a disastrous thing, because you never know when a town, a state, a country is going to add something that should be perfectly legal onto the list of things that you can be killed by the state for. What do you think? I felt pretty similarly, especially Comparing it to modern times, the suspects were in jail for so long because they couldn't pay for release. Like, that's kind of similar to bond situations. And Increase Mathers' quote about 
how it's better to have 10 witches go free than one innocent person be condemned. And Del and I have made our opinions clear on the death penalty before, and it rings true like 300 years later. I think it's really interesting that people seem to really own up to their mistakes with this. A lot of people, like we said, that were involved, even Anne Putnam Jr., who was out accusing people of witchcraft, she said that she was guilty and that she had made mistakes. I feel like we never really see people own up to their actions and to say like, yeah, I got caught up in something or like my parents probably forced me or encouraged me to do like this bad thing. And I think it's really interesting that they had like a a mourning period almost and like a day for repentance and to reflect on the awful things that the town had done. I've never heard of anything like that happening recently for sure, but never really like throughout history. It shows kind of what you were saying too, Del, about how scary it is when people in power just have so much control and when people take things too extremely. And that's, you know, with the Bible, how everyone was just so fearful of the devil and witchcraft and bad things happening that they just lost all reason. And I was surprised to read that even in 1692, There were very logical explanations for things that were going on, and people just ignored that. I don't think we talk about the people that were against the witch trials enough, because I feel like when we learn about it, it seems like the majority of people, you know, wanted these witches hung, and, you know, they thought they were really making their town safer, but it seems like a lot of people really didn't. We wanted to take a minute to just highlight five of the accused people of Salem. So the accused, like we were saying, had certain traits in common. Many were middle-aged, many were women, many were poor, and many had a reputation of being a stubborn person in Salem Village. And both men and women were accused of witchcraft. The first person we're going to talk about is Rebecca Nurse. Nurse was an elderly, pious, and well-liked woman that had a rivalry with the Putnams over land. She was also vocal about her dislike of Reverend Paris. Rebecca Nurse was originally found not guilty at the end of her trial in late June, but when the verdict was read out loud in the court, the afflicted girls protested and the jury was asked to reconsider its decision. And then we have Sarah Wilds. She was a 65-year-old wife of a local judge. She was known to have run-ins with the law and was accused of fornicating out of wedlock and wearing a silk scarf. And there were also rumors of her being a witch that were likely spread by her in-laws because they just flat out didn't like her. The next person is John Willard. 30-year-old Willard was a deputy constable during the trials. He was one of the first people in Salem to speak out against the witch trials. Willard was tasked with helping to arrest the accused witches, but soon began to doubt so many people could be guilty of witchcraft and quit his job in protest. He was accused by Anne Putnam Jr., who also accused him of beating her baby sister to death. Willard was accused a second time by his wife's grandfather, Ray Wilkins, after Wilkins fell ill upon receiving a dirty look from Willard in May of 1692. Just a few days later, Bray's grandson, Daniel Wilkins, was found dead, his body bloody and beaten. Willard originally fled Salem Village, but was found and arrested. The final person is John Proctor. 61-year-old Proctor was a wealthy farmer in Salem Village and was outspoken against the witch trials. 
He often threatened to beat or whip the afflicted girls for their role in the witch trials. His wife, Elizabeth, was accused of witchcraft, and during her examination, the afflicted girls accused him as well. Proctor's entire family was eventually arrested on charges of witchcraft. Proctor knew Salem was in the midst of a mass hysteria and wrote a letter to the Boston clergy in July asking that they intervene or move the trials to Boston. They were too late and he was executed in August of 1692. Before we wrap up, we wanted to talk about another witch hunt that took place in the U.S. during the Cold War. In 1947, the House Un-American Activities Committee began investigating communist activity in Hollywood in what critics considered an outrageous infringement of First Amendment rights in the name of national security. And if you were called and if you refused to participate in a hearing, you would be blacklisted and your career would essentially be ruined. So the Un-American Activities Committee, I believe, focused mainly on Hollywood, but other people were accused as well, both from the government people from like science backgrounds, medical backgrounds, and obviously this was done in fear of communism infiltrating America. In a 1950 speech, Senator Joseph McCarthy claimed he had a list of 205 communists in the State Department, and thus began an era of what people called McCarthyism, based off Joseph McCarthy and his views. His claims were never substantiated, but his power and influence grew, and many were wrongfully accused of being a communist. He often fabricated or skewed evidence in his favor. His heavy-handed style of interrogation and notorious tactic of questioning the loyalty of anyone who criticized his agenda gave rise to McCarthyism and the term. In 1953, playwright Arthur Miller released his play The Crucible. In this play, Arthur Miller used the Salem Witch Trials as an allegory for the McCarthyism paranoia of the 1950s. In 1956, Miller was subpoenaed to appear before the House Un-American Activities Committee, and he adamantly refused to provide names and was convicted of contempt. In 1958, the U.S. Court of Appeals overturned Miller's contempt conviction, and McCarthy did lose popularity. He actually went after the U.S. military, and a lot of people, you know, that was like the last straw for them, and he was eventually censured by the U.S. Senate, and he died not long after all of this happened, likely due to alcoholism. This happened less than 100 years ago, so it's very clear that witch hunts and paranoia can still happen. That wraps up this week's case. Thank you for listening. Let us know in the comments what you think about the Salem Witch Trials. You can read more about this case and how to support us in the links below. We will be back next week with a brand new episode focused on the stories of Amanda Barry, Gina Jesus, and Michelle Knight, who were kidnapped and held captive in Cleveland, Ohio. As always, stay safe.